Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you a paper presentation by CBHD Fellow Gregory W. Rutecki, MD, that originally was delivered as a parallel paper session at CBHD's 2009 Summer Conference, Global Bioethics, Emerging Challenges Facing Human Dignity. The presentation is entitled, Forced Sterilization of Native Americans, Late 20th Century Physician Cooperation with National Eugenic Policies. Hello, everyone. Uh, this will be a little different. I want to be somewhat informal, though the topic seems very formal. Uh, I'm reading uh, about some important bioethical uh, aspects of Native American culture at the interface with the uh, United States government, more importantly with physicians. And I'll admit uh, right up front, I am not an expert in history of Native Americans. My wife and I are, were in a small group Bible study, and one of the members was getting her master's degree in U.S. history, and she had a particular interest in Native American culture. So I found out very quickly that what I knew about Native American culture, I could put in a thimble with room left over. And so I had her help me read a little bit, and I became fascinated reading about Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. I think like everyone else reading about Wounded Knee. And because I came at it with a background in bioethics, what I really learned was that I was extremely naive, both about the force of the eugenics movement in the United States to the point that uh, Adolf Hitler wrote letters thanking physicians in the U.S. for teaching him how to engineer the final solution. And I went on to do some collateral reading after reading Edwin Black's book, The War Against the Weak, and found out, lo and behold, that while I was in medical school, and I realized that wasn't yesterday, but in the mid-1970s, that American physicians with impunity were sterilizing and aborting Native American women on reservations. And so that's what this is about. I will not go over the introduction again because I ended up writing it as a paper, and the introduction is pretty much contained in the abstract you have before you, but I'd like to go over the history and then put it in, in uh, conjunction with a look at um, the American eugenics movement, which began during the 1890s, and look at some of the physicians, and then try to argue, I don't know whether it will be persuasively or not, that in reality many of the physicians who aborted and sterilized, whether it be Native American women, African-American women or Latinos were fully consistent with behavior that had been modeled the generation preceding. And I think the most shocking part for me was it was as if Nuremberg, the Geneva Convention, all the talk fresh in their minds about the Holocaust had absolutely no impact whatsoever on the philosophical underpinnings of a significant number of American physicians. This all started when a woman, Native American woman, came in to see a physician who, not by chance, I think it was uh, destined to be that way, uh, a physician named Don, uh, Connie Pinkerton Urey, who also was Native American. And the young lady was about 24 years old, and her chief complaint was that she wanted a uterine transplant. She caught the physician totally off guard because uh, there was no 
idea whatsoever, a concept of uterine transplantation. When she was asked why, in Native American culture, it's important to bear children, and she underwent a total abdominal hysterectomy at age 20 for very unconvincing reasons. And so Pinkerton Urey started to look into this. Was this the tip of an iceberg? Was this a bizarre occurrence on one single reservation? And not long afterward, uh, two other women, both again in their 20s, went in for appendectomies on reservations and received a, quotes, incidental tubal ligation prior to having any children. Connie Pinkerton Urey decided to pursue it, and the U.S. government decided to embarrass her kind of saying that this was just a very biased approach by a Native American physician to make a mountain out of a molehill. And so what they did for her was they decided, forced by a senator in South Dakota who had a heart for the Native American population, November 6, 1976, the government accounting office decided, okay, there are 12 Indian Health Service areas that are covered. We're going to pacify Dr. Pinkerton Urey, and we're going to look at four of those areas to see, to prove that her allegations that there's forced sterilizations and abortions on reservations uh, never took place. So they looked at the records of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Aberdeen, South Dakota, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Phoenix, Arizona, and found out that between 1973, again, the timing just is scary. You'd think I'd be saying 1873, but it's 1973 and 1976 that at least, and we're going to go through independent reporting, uh, so there were some independent investigations at the same time, there were 3,406 sterilizations performed that were reported. Now, that's interesting because if you look at it per capita, I mean, there are not a lot of Native Americans left, even in America. That would be the equivalent of sterilizing 452,000 non-Native American women within the same time frame, which was three years, 1973 to 1976. And what was bothersome about the facts in the case was that if you looked at the Albuquerque, New Mexico situation, We'll talk a little bit about how many Indian Health Service doctors there were. They did not have enough doctors to perform any surgeries, much less sterilization and abortion. So they contracted out at full price to the private community to physicians to perform the sterilizations and abortions for them. And none of those statistics were included in the final tally, which means that the government accounting office's report was probably a gross underestimate of the number of Native American women who were both aborted and sterilized. What the government also admitted at the time, but very quietly, was that physicians who were contracted out for sterilizations in Albuquerque, New Mexico, did not have to follow any government rules, laws regarding informed consent. And so as we'll find out later, there was active coercion. Women were told that the children they had would be taken away from them if they did not consent to sterilization. So it looked like there needed to be some independent review since the government was only going to look at four out of 12 reservations. And the best study I found was actually done by a public health group. And what they did, they went to a single Navajo reservation 
and looked at figures from 1972 to 1978 to see indeed if Connie Pinkerton Urey was seeing a tip of the iceberg. And they found out, lo and behold, we had a crisis on our hands. There was a 130% increase in the number of abortions over that period of time. So in number, the ratio of abortions per thousand deliveries on that reservation, again from 1972 to 1978, increased from 34 to 77. In the same study, they also demonstrated that in the interval between 1972 in 1978, sterilization procedures, first was abortion, now sterilization procedures, increased from 15.1 to 30.7% of all female surgeries performed. So rather than embarrass uh, Dr. Urey, who had met occasional patients who had said they'd been sterilized without consent, in fact, some of these women were told that it was a temporary procedure and it could be reversed later, uh, independent investigations additional to the Government Accounting Office demonstrated that this was a real serious problem that warranted investigation. I'll go to the end of some of the story right off the bat. It never made court. Two or three Cheyenne women in, in Wyoming who were going to testify and try to get this to the Supreme Court were paid off by the government, and so none of the physicians' names can be found. I've done a fairly extensive literature search, including public health journals just applying to Native American health, and I cannot find the name of a single physician who was complicit in this behavior, either as a member of the Indian Health Service or as a private contracted physician. What bothered me even more was to look and ask a couple fundamental questions after I saw that data. Was this behavior just a continuation of eugenic policy, which was fairly explicitly commented upon by Edwin Black in his book? Was it some sort of aberration? Was someone being paid to do something that where greed transcended philosophy? And what I found out was a, tr a background that shocked me, and again, I apologize for my naivete. Many of you probably knew this long before I told you. I started to look at some physicians in the United States who formed the, the backbone of eugenic policy that later was imitated in great degree uh, with the Third Reich and their final solution. And look at some of the dates here. In Kansas, in the 1890s, there was a physician named F. Hoyt Pilcher. He surgically sterilized 58, quotes, feeble-minded children as early as the 1890s. And I think many of you are familiar as this unfolds over the next generation of the quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, two generations of imbeciles are enough. It's a privilege to bear children. And so it became... Uh, acceptable philosophy to sterilize those who were supposedly going to have less than sterling children. Another one named Harry Clay Sharp, he graduated from medical school 1893. He castrated individuals and institutions who masturbated. Albert John Oxner advocated compulsory sterilization of criminals, and this was even before the turn of the 20th century. And interesting enough, his philosophy was not only published, but enthusiastically published in a journal that still has a wide readership today, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And so background was that the late 19th and early, early 20th century, 
for our country, but also more importantly for the American physicians, would become a harbinger of worse things yet to come. And one of the more amazing ones, and uh, I thought for a very long time that some of the Nazi behaviors in the Holocaust during World War II uh, were learned from Turkish physicians who during the original genocide, in fact, the New York Times called that the first Holocaust. During that genocide, the Armenian physicians had managed to make a kind of archetype gas chamber, which obviously the German physicians at the time saw, who might, which might have informed German physicians later. But in reality, this is an American physician in 1899 by the name of W. Duncan McKim. He actually wanted to provide a pragmatic, unfortunately pragmatic and medical way to accomplish his end of executing, in quotes, undesirables. And so he observed, consistent with what then became a fairly predominant eugenic frame, that heredity, in quotes, is the fundamental cause of human wretchedness. The surest, the most humane means for preventing reproduction among those that we deem unworthy of the high privilege of reproduction is a gentle, painless death. And he actually came up with a gas chamber that used carbonic uh, acid to kill what he had hoped to be humans that were deemed undesirable. At that time and shortly thereafter, it was really interesting to read a list of people who were explicitly and actively in favor of eugenic sterilization and quite possibly uh, eugenic euthanasia. And it includes a who's who of both the intelligentsia and the wealthy, inclusive of Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, Oliver Wendell Holmes of the infamous quote I alluded to earlier. And most of the research, most of the publications were funded very liberally, not by the NIH, but by both the Rockefeller and the Carnegie foundations at that time. So I asked myself, did this philosophy survive World War II? And I wanted to see if I could find proof in my investigation that the physicians active in the eugenic movement on Indian reservations as late as the 1970s, were they just resurfacing a philosophy despite the fact that I thought Nuremberg, Geneva, and a lot of other uh, important, very public trials had uh, ended that unfortunate phase uh, of our fallen human nature. Uh, interestingly enough, I found information right away that indeed World War II wasn't the end. John D. Rockefeller, he got to name 10 members to a population council in 1952. Now it's after World War II. Of the 10 members that he named to his council, six had been explicitly active in the eugenic movement of one generation earlier, and it actively preached eugenic sterilization and abortion. So let's look at the physicians in the Indian Health Service and see if we could come up with some motivators. A lot of information available about what they were paid, how difficult the job was to obtain. To try to get an idea, were they motivated at all by finances? Were they motivated by philosophy? Were they motivated by the government? New recruits to the Indian Health Service in the early 1970s, the uh, era under scrutiny, made only between seventeen dollars to $20,000 per year. There were no incentives whatsoever. So if they said, I sterilize 
or I abort because I get a bonus. Uh, that did not occur. They worked on average a 60-hour work week, and I expect at $17,000 a year with a 16, uh, excuse me, a 60-hour work week that they were not looking for extra work. And so I think that uh, I had a suspicion at that point in time that the motivation related to a continuation of eugenic philosophy that had begun early in the 20th century. Interestingly uh, enough, a number of questionnaires uh, were done at that time trying to find out what physicians in the United States of the 1950s and 60s thought about eugenic procedures. And what people found out was that if you asked the average physician, let's take 1972, uh, about sterilization, 6% would ask, answer a questionnaire saying that uh, they would recommend sterilization as an option for a white woman who could pay for the surgery. However, that number increased to 14% if the woman in question was a welfare mother with three or more children. When asked later on what was the best method of birth control, 97% said that sterilization was a very acceptable form of birth control. So it seems like the physicians in the 1970s, Indian Health Service and not, inhabited an ethos that was thought was completely consistent with serving the country, serving society uh, at large by sterilizing those that they thought were undesirable. Here's a quote from a Dr. Curtis Wood right around the same time. Uh, it's interesting, uh, the name of his association is the Association for Voluntary Sterilization, and I apologize for the misnomer, but this is his quote as head of that agency. After 30 years of delivering babies, I found that if the doctor does a proper job of offering sterilization to these women on welfare, a high percentage of them would accept it. I have found after three to four minutes of talking with them, they will accept it. Then there was a quote from a lady who I think had phenomenal insight by the name of Barbara Caress. And she uh, studied the culture at that time and said that, quotes, sterilization abuse is both systematic and widespread. It stems from a combination of factors, teaching and research, fee-for-service systems, which we'll talk about in just a second with the contract model of medicine. It is the most widespread example of medicine as an instrument of social control. Since 1970, the figures show an almost threefold increase in the incidence of female sterilization. Now, she's presenting this as a general phenomenon, not necessarily focused solely on the Native American population. 192,000 women sterilized in 1970 to 548,000 in 1974, and she then uh, tries to place blame. Many young gynecologists in training have united their professional needs for training and their political ideas. And she said another reason for an increase in operations is greed. And then she goes on to say between 1967 and 1973, federal support for family planning services increased more than 1,300%. If the physician did the sterilization and sent the bill, he or she would be paid. And so she said the line between voluntary and involuntary sterilization becomes thinner all the time. So what I did after that was say, well, let's try 
a dichotomy possibly for physicians and say that the physicians in the Indian Health Service obviously had to be motivated by philosophy because they sure weren't motivated by money. What about the physicians, specifically in Albuquerque, who were uh, contracted for the patients uh, that they saw? I really think if we look at William Mays, and I still think it's a wonderful way to conceptualize medical practice as is it philanthropy, uh, is it contract, is it covenant or code, it was very clear to see that uh, it surely was not philanthropy. That was a very easy argument to sustain. But I think what happened was we were seeing the first generation of physicians in America that would be paid by Uncle Sam without capitation, without question, every time by contract that they performed only a, ster a surgical procedure and they were unrestrained at the time by informed consent. When they were investigated, there were three terrible informed consent documents, but when uh, any effort was made legally or by Congress, there was a specific representative who tried to pursue this, the government absolved them because they said they did not need to follow informed consent. It was quid pro quo, you do a sterilization, you perform an abortion, you're paid for that. So it struck me, and I drew some conclusions that may be some stretches, but it worries me today. Right now, I can say that the uh, sterilizations on reservations had stopped, thanks to uh, Representative uh, James Aborzak, a very interesting man at the time, because he understood sectarian conflict and genocide. He was from, his family had uh, immigrated uh, from Lebanon. He had stopped the coercion by saying, no longer can the U.S. government take Indian children when uh, Native American parents uh, refused to consent to sterilization or abortion or any other type of uh, abnormality, they, he stopped that from happening. It, it ended. The last uh, I can find in the United States is 1979, California. The leader in the United States for forced sterilizations and abortions uh, had finally stopped. It appears today if we look at the Dartmouth Atlas and a number of other places, the physicians, and I miss the right group to talk about fallen nature with, physicians have as fallen a nature as anyone else. And what happens is when they are allowed to get paid for performing a procedure, technique, only technique outside of ethics, especially with declining reimbursements, the temptation is too much to pass up. And so I think that with a lot of the payment models today are strictly driven by contract. And I know many saw it. I got to write a commentary on peer review uh, in Christian Medical and Dental Society newsletter. It was an actual case of a physician on call at night uh, in a state that has 28% level reimbursement for cardiologic procedures, who obviously is being reimbursed less, who dilated uh, a lady's coronary arteries in her 80s with a 30% lesion. He sends in a bill, he's going to get paid. And so now he's got a lady in her 80s who's on uh, Plavix, Clopidogrel, and is going to be at risk for bleeding with what's left of her duration of life. And so contract medicine bothers me, and I think that this was one of the first examples, particularly in Albuquerque, New Mexico, of where quid pro quo payment divorced technique, the term that Nigel Cameron uses frequently, divorced technique from any ethical constraints on the performance of the procedure. Okay, thank you. That was Forced Serialization of Native Americans, Late 20th Century Physician Cooperation with National Eugenic Policies, 
by Gregory W. Rutecki, M.D. Dr. Rutecki is professor of medicine at the University of South Alabama Medical School and is a fellow of CBHD. This presentation was originally delivered as a parallel paper session at CBHD's 2009 Summer Conference, Global Bioethics, Emerging Challenges Facing Human Dignity. The text on which this presentation was based, along with references, is posted on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.